Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse -verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Hi, good morning. Happy 4th of July. Independence Day. Independence Day. We're going to start at 1 Corinthians 1.1 again this morning because there's still more stuff to look at, more stuff to say. I do like Pauline theology. I'm a big fan of Pauline theology. I've even called myself a Paulinist in the past, although... Given what Paul's about to say, I have to be careful that I don't end up saying I'm of Paul. But I do like Pauline theology because it is a perfect mix of both practicality and great theology. I have argued for years that good theology ought to lead to good life. Good practice comes from good theology. And any theology that merely fills up your head with good information but doesn't actually affect your life is not preaching the whole counsel of God. Because Paul starts with, this is who you are. You are the redeemed. You are the blood-bought. You are the chosen, the elect of God. Your names are in the Lamb's book since before the foundation of the world. And yet, he goes on from there and says, now act like it. Live like it. Be different than the world. Because you do know who you are. And so I really like that mix. Because when I came out of the church in Los Angeles, uh, that church was very legalistic. Right, Tom? Absolutely. Okay. Had to get a witness there. Tom and I went to the same church. It was so legalistic that the preacher even told us that if we weren't tithing a minimum of 30%, that we didn't trust God with our wallet and were probably headed for hell. Yeah, I, I saw that look. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of legalism that we encountered out there. And I can give you example after example after example, like the fact that we didn't write our checks to the church we wrote them directly to the pastor. Uh, all the money was his. and So coming out of a very legalistic background, when I got here and became a member of a church in Franklin, I for the first time heard the doctrines of grace. And I didn't know at that point the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism, and I didn't know all that. But I realized in listening out there that I had been taught in Los Angeles a very truncated gospel because he was free to choose any portion of any text. He was free to choose a verse and pull it from its context and then utilize it, twist it, mold it in such a way that it fit his purpose. And I didn't know any better, so I believed that that was Bible teaching. And then I got out to Franklin and for the first time heard grace and, oh, I went nuts. I went crazy. I said, grace. It's all grace. It's Everything's grace. It's grace, grace, grace. It's all grace. It's, 
And while that is essentially true, when I started preaching at my house and then eventually here and in the early years of GCA, my messages were all, it's grace, it's completely grace, it's totally grace, it's all grace. And uh, it was Jeff Young who cornered me one day and said, yeah, but where's the call to holiness? And I went, oh, that's right. I guess I'm missing a piece. I'm saying it's grace, grace, it's all grace, it's completely grace. And I came frightfully close to saying that the message of the Bible was strictly and solely grace without any paying attention to how you lived or calling people to be better. And so I eventually learned through teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible that the Pauline theology really was grace, 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 and because it's grace, 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 now do better. And you have to be preaching both sides of that or you're not preaching the entirety of the gospel. Now, there are folks who preach do better, do better, do better without the grace part and they become legalists. And there are people who preach it's all grace, it's completely grace without the do better part. But Paul time and time again does the same thing and we're about to see it. He says it's God, it's Christ, it's finished work, it's election, it's predestination, it's God all the way. He chose you, he made you the church, you belong to him, and then immediately gets into, now let's talk about your behavior. And so there's room for that in preaching the Christian message. We're going to see in just a moment that Paul is going to do that exact thing, and so I think that in order to preach the whole of the gospel, we have to go beyond just the five points that are classically called Calvinism. We have to go beyond just the, I have head knowledge, I have theological knowledge, I have an academic understanding of the Bible. We have to go beyond that to the other things that Paul says, which are, and your behavior matters, because you're called to be different than the world. You're called to be a unique people. You're called to be people whose lives are devoted to Christ. And if Christ were in you, I mean, it's an old joke, but if the power of God, the spirit of God, the dunamis of God were inside you, I think it would show. I think people would know there's something different about you. And even Peter brings it up and says, be ready to give a defense to everyone who inquires about the hope that is within you. Well, that means your hope showed or else they wouldn't inquire about it. And you need to be ready to give an answer, to give a defense, an apologia for the fact that that hope is within you. So let's start right at 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. In our introduction last week, we talked about Sosthenes and who he is, Jewish fellow who took a beating on behalf of Pauline theology. And so he's acting as Paul's amanuensis. He's actually doing the secretarial work of writing the letter as Paul is dictating to him. But look at the next phrase, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Those two words, of God, are really important. 
because Paul didn't say to the church at Corinth. He said to the church of God. Who does the church belong to? It belongs entirely to God. It is his church. Now, Paul is adamant about this. Paul is pointing this out so that once he identifies who this church of Corinth belongs to and what it took to save them, he can then transition very naturally into, and now your behavior, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, we talked a little bit last week about it. In Corinth, there were several different temples to various different idols. And so it is important to identify the ecclesia. When you hear the word church, you need to think gathering because ecclesia, ecclesia, however you want to say the word, means a gathering or an assembly. And anybody could gather an assembly. You could walk through the streets and say, I'm going to be in the middle of town today at 12 o'clock and people would gather to hear you. And that was your ecclesia. And so it's important that the church is identified as being the church of Jesus Christ. We are the assembly, the gathering that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's important that we are the church of God, of Yahweh, of Theos. We are that church. If it was a random person walking through the street gathering an assembly, Tom yesterday went to a picnic that was held by a local DJ where there were local bands and there were local politicians meeting and greeting and saying hi to folks. Okay, that was an ecclesia. That was a gathering. That was an assembly. But it wasn't an assembly that belonged to Jesus Christ. It wasn't the assembly that belonged to God. And that's the reason that years ago we named GCA Grace Christian Assembly because we are the assembly that is Christian, that belongs to Christ. And so the church, the ecclesia of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Last week, I pointed out that these two words are the same word, hagias. They have the same root. They have the same essential meaning to be set apart by God for his exclusive use. In order for you to get some sense of what that means, think about the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was a great deal of furniture inside there. There was also implements. There were tools that were used in the worship of God. And those things were sprinkled with lamb's blood, which was the blood of the covenant. And once they were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, those objects were referred to as holy objects. And they could no longer be used for any common purpose. In fact, when you get to the book of Daniel and you read about the feast that Belshazzar had, the reason for the hand writing on the wall, many, many, tackle you, farson, was because he took the implements that were originally part of the temple worship of Yahweh, he took those as part of his banquet, as part of his falderall. And God so disliked it that he sent a message, a warning of impending doom with a hand writing on the wall because he was using holy objects. Now, these are all objects that don't have any sense of morality. 
Do you understand what I mean by that? These are objects that cannot do goodness and cannot do sin. These are inanimate objects. But because the blood of the covenant was placed on them, they were considered holy objects and you couldn't use them for any common purpose. Now, that's the Old Testament concept. And once you have that concept of what it means for an object to be sanctified, to be set apart for God's exclusive use, well, then you have some sense of what it means here that Christ sanctified particular people. He used his blood, the blood of his covenant, in order to sanctify, to separate particular people. And the meaning of the word is still the same. Those separated people aren't to be used for any common purpose. And yet we so easily drift into commonality. We act like the world. We think like the world. We behave like the world. But Paul has taken the time to point out Christ has separated you. Christ has sanctified you. And that is why you are also called, exact same word, hagios. It's translated as saints. But he could have just as easily, in our English translations, they would be completely right to say, he has sanctified you, and therefore you are called the sanctified. In the book of Hebrews, we read that Christ, by his single sacrifice, that he perfected forever all those that he sanctified. So the death of Christ adequately and sufficiently paid the price to sanctify particular people, separating them from the world, and therefore they are the sanctified, the saints. Now Paul is saying all this about people who he is about to correct. And he's about to correct them in a way that causes him a great deal of trouble and a great deal of grief. And he's really upset about the way that they're behaving. And yet he says to them, but you are the hagios, but you are the redeemed, you are the saved, you are the separated. And therefore, because you're the separated, because you're the saints, act like it. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Okay, now we've got to add one more word here because the word calling is very, very important. Remember Paul writing in Romans 8 that he said, whom God foreknew, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Furthermore, whom he predestinated, he called. The same way that I might walk outside when my kids were young and they were playing with other kids outside. I would walk outside and I would call my kids by name because it was time for them to come in the house. James and Megan, come here. I was calling them and it was a particular call. It was a call that was specifically to children who belonged to me. Same idea. God has called particular people. And in calling those particular people, he has redeemed them, he has sanctified them, and he has called them hagios, he has called them his saints. And that is the reason that Paul is going to write the rest of what he writes, because these are God's people. And so they need to be instructed. You can look through all of human history and you won't find a single letter that Paul wrote to the heathen. You won't find it. 
He never took the time to say, you heathen, act better. Because there was no reason for them to act better. They were acting like the world. They were behaving exactly like the unsaved. Like the heathen, like the ungodly, they were behaving like that, and Paul expected them to behave like that. But to the church that belonged to God, he expected other behavior. So you are called, and you are called saints, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. This morning in our prayer time in the back room, and this happens almost every week during our prayer time when the men gather back there. At some point, someone will say, and bless churches all over the world. Bless churches this morning that are gathered in your name, that are glorifying you, that are worshiping you. Bless them because they belong to you. And so here Paul says, you're not the only ones. You, the church at Corinth, I hope that God will bless you because you are part of a larger body with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. We as the church in Smyrna, we as GCA, a little church tucked away in a suburb of Nashville, we are only a part of a much larger body of elect saints who are all over the planet. And every once in a while I get to hear from some who are on the other side of the world. The women got together yesterday morning. According to Jennifer, they had a good turnout. They had a nice meeting. This is great. But one of the things that, that they did was talk about this girl who is in Australia who can't find anybody that she can converse with in her community. And so she reached out to me and said, can you possibly give my name, my number, my email address to some other saints who are there at GCA because I believe what GCA believes and nobody over here believes it. Can you please pass my information on so I can have some communication with like-minded saints? She's in Australia. It's the other side of the world. It's a different hemisphere. And she's reaching out because saints look for saints. And she can't find any in her particular area, but God knows exactly where she is. And he has connected her with like-minded women. And I'm very glad that some of you have volunteered to communicate with her. Because she's part of the church all over the planet. The saints that God has chosen for himself out of all the human population, out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation, he has his people. And so Paul reminds them of that. With all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. It's the same Lord that they're calling upon, that we're calling upon. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. Irene, peace, grace, what that means. That you can only have peace with God if you have the grace of God, the grace of God has to come first before you're ever going to have peace with him. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. There it comes again. Grace, grace, grace. Grace and peace from God. I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. 
Now, we're going to find out in the remaining chapters that these folks are acting up in all sorts of terrible and heinous ways. And yet Paul would say, God is being gracious to you. He has chosen you despite how you act. He has chosen you, called you, drawn you to himself despite how you act because... Knowing you and how you act by nature, if it were up to you, you would never come to God. If he left it up to you, you would never choose God. You like your sin way too much. You enjoy your flesh way too much. And so God had to be good to you. God had to come to you, had to call you, had to choose you, had to elect you and bring you to himself. And that's all grace. And so Paul could say, I thank God. That he would do that for you, especially you. Look at you. Look at how you're living. And yet the grace of God was sufficient to get to you. Now Paul said that to the Corinthians. Do I have to apply it to this group here? Do I have to point out that there were none of you that were acting good? That God said, oh, look at them. Oh, that's good. I need to go get them right away. It just wouldn't be heaven without George. I've got to go get him right now. No, it is always, always God looking at people and saying they're sinful and they're depraved and they're God-haters and they're rebels and they're against me and I'm going to save them as an act of grace, as an act of God's kindness. So I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. Not only was the Corinthian church blessed in all speech, but we're going to see later in this letter, they abused the gift of speech. They abused the gift of tongues. The Holy Spirit of God gave them the ability to exercise all sorts of spiritual gifts which they took way too far and yet Paul thanked God that he would even give these sinners and rebels gifts like these and then all knowledge that you have the kind of knowledge that the world simply does not have the world after knowledge we just heard it read for us that after knowledge after thinking after the world's wisdom they did not know God And so God chose particular people to make the wisdom of the wise foolishness. And he chose the base things and he chose sinners. He chose people like you and me and then gave them an abundance of gifts. And Paul seeing that said, I thank God that he would do that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift. All the spiritual gifts were were well known in Corinth despite how they behaved. And then this phrase, we're going to take some time and kind of camp on this phrase. This is where we ended last week where I told you we'd pick up so that you're not lacking in any gift and you are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's first talk about the word apocalypsis. That's the word that is translated revelation there. It's also the name of a book 
the book of Revelation. And what it means, essentially, is the uncovering, the unveiling. And so if you have gone through your life a sinful person who didn't care about God, and suddenly one day the things of God made sense to you, the word of God became clear to you, and you found yourself having faith in Christ, it is because Christ was unveiled to you. He was covered before. He was hidden from you before. But then he was unveiled to you, and it's a a genuine revelation. Everybody in this room can testify. I had that moment where suddenly these things made sense. All the lights went on and everybody's home. I mean, I got it. And so he said that we are eagerly awaiting the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that to the church of Jesus Christ. These are people who have already had the spiritual gifts, already had the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So which revelation is he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that Christ is coming back. And he was looking forward to Christ coming back. This Christianity thing, it's not just about what you can get out of it here and now. It's knowing that there is a kingdom coming. It's knowing that Christ is returning. It's knowing that we are going to be in the new Jerusalem, that we have an eternal destiny with Jesus Christ. And so the passing things of this world, the stuff that happens in this lifetime that knocks us over or hampers our way or gets us so frustrated, these are are just passing things. They're just dust. They add up to nothing. In fact, Solomon would say it's vanity of vanities. It's all a bunch of nothing. What's important is where we're going. What's important is what's coming. What's important is stepping from this life into the next life and that you will either be judged or you will be with Christ. And so the return of Christ is a thing that we look forward to. We anticipate. Now, I hope that I can say this word correctly because Paul is going to use a big Greek word here and he's going to do one of his compound word things that he does. Paul oftentimes kind of plays with the Greek language and takes a word and a word and shoves it together, and it's a new word. You don't find it anywhere in classical Greek. It's just something that Paul did. And he came up with this word, apendectomahi. Appendectomy? Not appendectomy. The only reason that I'm quoting that word, the only reason that I want you to know that word is that the word is compound, and so in our English translations, it takes more than one word to translate it. And it's not just waiting. It's waiting eagerly. It's kind of like the word hope. The word hope in the Greek language is different than our English word hope. The Greek word for hope is elpis, The Greek word for faith is pistos. And so where faith seems like a concrete idea, I have faith in the finished work of Christ. I have faith in the return of Christ. Faith is essentially believing that the word of God is more true than your circumstances. That's a really concrete idea. But when we say the English word hope, we think, uh, that's real vague, that's real general. Gee, I hope it will happen. I hope it comes about. But the Greek word has that L piece, 
that same root that Pistas has. And so it's not a vague idea, it's a concrete idea. What it means is anticipating something you know is going to happen. And that's why Paul could say that the return of Christ is our blessed hope. It's not something we hope is going to happen, it's something we know is going to happen. It's why Paul could say that hope maketh not ashamed. Because it's a confidence and a confident looking forward to something that you know is going to happen. Okay, well, that's that same kind of word here. It means not just waiting for the return of Christ, but waiting eagerly for the return of Christ in our lives, in our behavior, in the things we do, in the way we talk, in the way we deal with others. We should have this constant remembrance that Christ is coming back. And we should act like it. Let me show you some verses that use this word so that you can get some sense of it because Paul is really stressing it. Uh, Romans 8.19 says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And that's that exact same word. Paul used it again, this waiting eagerly for the sons of God to come. Later in the same chapter, Romans 8.23, he says, And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. So we're looking forward to the return of Christ and the redemption of our sinful bodies so that we will have a form like Christ, so that we will have this eternal body that we're going to live in, and we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for that thing. Later in the same chapter, Romans 8.25, this is three times in the same chapter that Paul has used this word. But if we hope for what we do not see, there's that word hope, if we anticipate something that we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So if it's something we know is going to happen, if it's something that we have hope in, if we're hoping for the return of Christ, we're not just waiting, thinking, well, maybe one day he'll come back, maybe he won't, whatever. We're anticipating the return of Christ with an eager waiting for his appearance and his revelation. That's Pauline theology. That's Paul's thinking on the return of Christ. And that's the way we're supposed to live with this eager anticipation. Galatians 5.5, for we through the spirit by faith are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. You understand that sentence? Because I want to be righteous. I look forward to being righteous. I heard a preacher one time say, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to put me in hell forever. I want to know what it's like to worship God, to praise God in spirit and in truth, and not have my wicked body and my evil mind constantly conjuring up things that I don't want to think about because I'm thinking about God right now. And then in the midst of my prayer, next thing I know, I'm thinking about random things and evil things. And I quit it. I want righteousness. I want holiness to the Lord. That's my hope. That's my anticipation because I know that's going to happen. I know he's going to change me. I know he's going to convert me when this corruptible puts on incorruptibility, when this 
when this depraved is going to put on eternal goodness. I know this is going to happen. And so Paul would write that that hope of righteousness we have through the spirit, we have faith, and we are eagerly awaiting that righteousness. Getting a feel for this? I mean, Paul was anticipatory. Paul was really looking forward to it. Paul took five beatings. Paul spent a day and a night in the deep. Paul was imprisoned and under house arrest. He was anticipating the return of Christ. He was seeing that as his deliverance. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven. I like that phrase. I'm not a citizen of Smyrna, and I'm not a citizen of the United States, and I'm not, I'm a citizen of heaven. What good news. Our citizenship, where we belong, is in heaven. From which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he said it a bunch of times. He has said it over and over again, writing to all the different churches. He talks about the return of Christ and how we are eagerly anticipating it. Because when he comes back, for us, a whole lot of good things happen. When he comes back, we put on immortality. When he comes back, we move from this place on earth to our citizenry in heaven. This is all good stuff. And Paul keeps emphasizing it. For our citizenship is not in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body, the body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of his glory. (gasps) Do you feel that? I mean, what kind of body does Christ have right now? He's got the kind of body that is as comfortable sitting at the right hand of God as it is by the Sea of Galilee eating fish. He did both those things. He appeared behind a locked door. I don't think that the stone was moved to let him out of the tomb. The stone was moved so that we could come in. And find out he's not there anymore. I think he went through the rock. I think he went through a locked door. I think he transversed the distance between earth and heaven. And that's the body you're promised. I can't promise you anything better than that. Especially if you're an old creaky guy like me. (laughs) Especially if you get up every day and go, okay, what's going to work today? There's a body coming, a heavenly body that is just like Christ that you're going to be given. The troubles of this world, the problems of this world, the diseases, the death of this world. It's all going to pass away. No more sickness, no more death. God's going to wipe away every tear. So yes, so yes, so yes, I eagerly anticipate that. I want that. I've used the phrase many times, I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. I want that. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The same power that he has to be ruler, to be in charge of everything, to subject everything to himself, by that power he has promised you he'll change you. The one who has authority over everything and has subjected everything to himself, by that power he's going to change you. And I eagerly await that. Hebrews 9.8, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Do you hear that? That's brilliant theology. If, in fact, Christ fully paid for all our sin debt, if Christ, in fact, fully accomplished everything necessary to secure us for all eternity, then when he comes back, he's not coming back with reference to our sin because our sin was paid for the first time. He's coming back to get us to change us, to redeem us. And so the writer of Hebrews could say that Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To whom? To those who eagerly await him. Same word. To those who eagerly are waiting for him. To those who are anticipating his return, who have that hope. Those are the people he's coming back for without reference to sin. Are you looking forward to the return of Christ, to the yes. revelation of our new body? To the, yes. Have you had enough of this world? Yes. Because that's what you're being promised is that very hope is produced in you by the Spirit of God. And that very hope designates you as part of the ecclesia he's coming back to get. Oh, man. Okay, one more. Sure, go ahead, Jim. Okay. <laughs> Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, and to live righteously, and to live godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope. There's that word. This blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us as a ransom to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, comma, zealous for good deeds. Did you hear that? It's, yeah, he's coming back. And we have the blessed hope that he's coming back. And we're anticipating that he's coming back. And he has redeemed us to himself. He's redeemed us from every lawless deed. Our sin problem is completely paid for and cleared up. And to purify, to sanctify, to separate a people unto himself. And what do those people look like? They're zealous for good deeds. How about that? This is Pauline theology. You know who you are. You understand what Christ has done. 
You are the church of God. Act like it. All right, back to 1 Corinthians. So that you, this is verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's just like everything we've been reading, that when he returns, we don't have to be afraid. When he returns, we are anxiously anticipating it because we are blameless. Paul did one of those uh, Greek tricks again. I told you that he would use the, the alpha negative. Oftentimes, he would take a word that had a very definite meaning, and then he would place the awe in the front of it. And by placing that awe in front of it, it essentially turns the word 180 degrees the other way. And so he took the word for blame, and he put an awe in the front of it. And he said, when Christ comes back, you are blame not. No blame. Nothing. And he's coming back without reference to our sin. And he's coming back to get his people. I hope that you leave here today with the anxious anticipation that Christ is coming to get you. I mean, that's the hope. That is the essence of what it is to be Christian, to to understand the whole counsel of God is to say, I believe that Christ is coming back and I am anxiously anticipating him coming back because when he does, righteousness is finally going to break out on this planet. He's going to rule the wicked nations with a rod of iron and every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. And that's all going to occur in human history when he comes back. Verse 9. Look at the first words. God is faithful. Okay, wait a minute. Now, okay, so I'm anxiously anticipating. Okay, so there's all these promises. Okay, there's a precursor to all these great promises, which are these gifts of the Holy Spirit that have come to us here and now in this present evil age. We're anticipating the return of Christ and the final redemption, the unveiling of Christ, all of that. But yes, Jim, I hear you say all that, but is it real? Is it going to happen? Because I've lived a long time and all I am so far is disappointed. All I am so far is seeing a world gone mad, and even I, who call myself Christian, I can't believe the things that I think, and I can't believe the things that I do or the places that I've been, and I'm a Christian. And come on, come on, is it real? That's why Paul had to say, God is faithful. If he said it, he's going to do it. Now, we have throughout the Bible, throughout the Old and New Testament, we have all these examples of God saying things, and then they happen. They come to pass in human history. How did Isaiah name Cyrus 150 years in advance? How did he do that? How did Cyrus's parents decide to name him Cyrus? They could have named him Doug and thrown the whole thing off. How? Because he has the power to make sure that human history comes to its fruition exactly the way that he decided it would. Mm 
and he keeps demonstrating it by making promises, by sending prophets, by saying things are going to happen, and those things do happen. How did he know that Tyre and Sidon were going to be a place, a great, magnificent island castle? How did he know that those great walls, impregnable Tyre, how did he know that that place was going to become nothing but rocks where fishermen were going to lay their nets? How did he know that? Because he brought Alexander the Great to throw rocks into the causeway over the course of years until they had built a causeway that his entire army could go across to attack the island and they brought down the castle. How did God know this? And by the way, it became a place where fishermen would mend and dry their nets, just like God said. Okay, so you have example after example after example after example We're reading on Wednesday nights. We're reading out of the book of Micah. And Micah predicts that the Savior who has existed since before the foundation of the world is going to be born in Bethlehem. How did he know that? Why would he say that? Why would he put himself out there? Just say Jerusalem generally. Just say somewhere in Israel. Why would he pick one of the smallest little towns a glitch on a map. Why would he say that's the place the Messiah will be born? Because he knew it. Because God said it. Once God said it, that's going to happen. And once God has said, my son's coming back. And he said it over and over. And he said it to all the churches. And he said it repeatedly. My son is coming back and he's going to redeem his people and he's going to change them and he's going to sanctify them and he's going to bring them to himself by his own calling. Why? Because God is faithful. So he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God, who knew exactly who he was going to choose, he knows every name that's in the Lamb's book of life, he knows when you're going to be born, and he knows when you're going to die, and that very God, in his extreme faithfulness, would make sure to call you, and to draw you, and to put you into fellowship with his Son. So, now let me ask the big question. Why are you a Christian today? Why do you believe any of this? I'm saying outrageous things up here. I'm saying crazy stuff. I'm saying the Lord of glory is going to pierce the clouds and come back to earth and you're going to be instantaneously changed. And if you die before he comes back, you're coming up out of your grave. And you're going to have a perfect body like the kind of body he has. That's wackiness if it's not true. But if it's true, it's the best news you ever heard. And if it's not true, God is faithless. And you can't count on him. But because he's faithful, Joni is sitting here today. Because he's faithful, people also have that gift of the Holy Spirit that causes them to believe things that would otherwise be unthinkable. But we believe it. We're convinced of it. Because the Holy Spirit of a faithful God has caused us to believe these things. Why us and not everyone? Because he chose. 
Why us? Are we the good ones? Conrad, you the good one? Not exactly. No, not exactly. No, why us? Because he chose out of grace. And if he chose out of the people who deserved it, then he'd be choosing according to merit. He'd be saying those people earned heaven and I have to give it to them because they earned it. But if he chooses people who did not earn it, if he chooses people who are rebels and sinful and God-hating and doing all kinds of things to demonstrate that they just have no interest in the things of God and he saves those people, like again what Tyler read this morning, the weak things of this earth. If he would choose them, then you know it's all of grace. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken a lot of time to identify the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. He's coming back. We know that he's the son of God. We know that he's the redeemer. We know that he sanctified you by his blood. That's the reason you're called saints. And so Paul writes, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete and in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now he's going to tell you in a minute why he would start there. Because he got a letter from Chloe saying that there is a great deal of disagreement within the church at Corinth. And so he has to write to them right off and say, first off, agree. There's this other wonderful compound word that Paul uses, homo legeo. You know the word homo. That means same. Homosexual, same sex. And then legeo, you know that word. Speech, words. Homologeo, speak the same words. Have the same mind. Speak with the same judgment. Be united with each other. And don't become factions. And don't become disagreeable with each other. And don't fight with each other. Because the watching world, because the outside world is waiting for the church to fall. The sinful world is waiting for the church to do something so wrong that they can just dismiss us once and for all. And say, well, the church doesn't count for anything. And we give them fodder. We give them gunpowder for their guns when we, among ourselves, are disagreeable. And so... The world watching us would look at us and say, well, why would I want to be a part of that? They don't even agree with each other. They don't even get along with themselves. I don't need any part of that. And so he's very clear right at the beginning. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And there be no divisions among you. But you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Turn to the book of Ephesians for just a moment. Turn to Ephesians 1. No, turn to Ephesians 4. This is also Paul writing and he's going to say, 
something very similar, but he's going to expand on it. Ephesians chapter 4, he talks first about gifts that are given to the church. But I want to talk about the reason that those gifts are given to the church. And the reason for the gifts is unity. Here we'll start in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, he's captive at this point, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called. Now, the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians is Paul's grand treatise on God's predestinary election and doing whatever he wills to do and his foreordination and foreknowledge. It's one of the most, you'll pardon the word, but it's one of the most Calvinistic passages you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Read the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. And then he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, and I entreat you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you were called. So it's true that you were called, and you were called by God, and you were called and elected by God by his predestinary will. So now walk like that. Act like you've been separated from the world. Walk with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Anybody want to say they got that down? Anybody want to say, no, I'm good. I got the whole patience, gentleness. I'm, I'm there. I'm totally there. With humility, gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to each other in love. Have you ever met anybody in church that you just didn't like? Trick question. See, you're afraid to answer. I saw a couple people almost imperceptibly nod. Sure you have. Sure you've met people that you just don't get along with. You just don't gel with them. And, and that's personalities. That's reality. But for Christ's sake, by Christ's power, you're to forbear with those people. You're to be in humility with those people and you're you're to bear up with one another in love for Christ's sake. So if you can't find anything within the other person that is commendable, if you can't find anything within the other person that you would consider likable, well then don't like them or don't forbear with them for their sake. Do it for Christ's sake. Because he is ultimately the one who's coming back for you and for that person. And you're going to spend eternity with them. You might as well get to like them now. Or it's going to be a really long eternity. With all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now look at the word diligent. Because Paul said, get to work. Be diligent at it. Pay attention to it. Make sure you're doing it. Because we don't naturally have forbearance for one another. We naturally say, it's me. It's all about me. I dig me. I like me. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? 
me. It's all me. And Paul is saying to be different than the world, to act differently than the old man, to be different than the sinner you once were, you're to forbear with other people and be diligent in it. Make the effort. There are disagreements in just about every church. I talk to pastors all the time, and, and they talk about their churches, and they talk about the fights, and they talk about the divisions, and they talk about the schisms and the factions and the, the difficulty that they have. And it could be solved if people would just pay attention to this and be diligent to put up with each other, to forbear with one another. And I'm very glad, I have to say, I'm very glad that here at GCA, we haven't had anything like that for years, which is great. So be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and there is one spirit, just as also you were called into one body in one hope of your calling. By the way, what is that one hope? Remember what we read in Timothy, yeah. It's the hope of Jesus coming back. And you all have that one hope. Your one body having one hope that the one Savior is going to come save his one church. And so there's unity in what we believe. There's unity in our theology. There's unity in our common spirit. That one spirit, how is it that we don't get along with each other? There is one body, there is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, when Christ left the planet, when he went up to sit on the right hand of God the Father, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He took people with him and he gave gifts to men. Doma is the Greek word there. It means charitable gift. He, out of charity, out of grace, out of kindness, he gave gifts to his church so that they would be in unity. Verse 9, now this expression that he ascended, what does that mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? I don't want to get sidetracked by that, but he's saying Christ did spend three days, just like he said, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's where he gathered the people that he led captive when he returned to heaven. But now he returns to the gifts. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave okay there's that gift thing and he gave some as apostles some as prophets some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for what reason did he give this gift verse 12 for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness 
of Christ. So think about what he has just said. God, the great architect, God who knows what he's doing. Not only did his son choose an ecclesia, not only did he choose particular people, particular individuals, and put them into his church, but then in order that there would be unity among his church, he gifted particular people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He gifted those people to preach the word so that there would be a unity of the faith, so that we would all be of one mind, so that we would all act as a unified body. God knew what he was doing. He didn't just say, these are my people, have at it. He said, these are my people, and I will give you gifts to steer you, to direct you, to guide you, lead you, teach you in the word. For what purpose? So that there's unity. The purpose of the gifts is not to lift up the men. The purpose of the gifts is unity in the body. Until, I read this once, but I'm going to say it again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So he takes it right back there again. We belong to Christ. Because we belong to Christ, we need to be different. And because we need to be different, he's going to send us gift ministers who are going to guide and lead us until we come to the unity of the faith. And that's God's divine eternal plan. And it's brilliant. It's a good plan. Go back to 1 Corinthians. We're nearly done. Now, knowing all that, that's all getting you ready for these verses. Because knowing all of that and everything Paul has said about unity and everything he's taught about unity, here's the first thing he has to deal with. They're disagreements. And what are those disagreements? Verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. There are fights, there are arguments among you. Now, I mean this. This is what I mean to say. That each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And now he asks the question, is Christ divided? I mean, the body is supposed to be in unity. As soon as you say, well, I'm of him, or or I'm of him, or I'm following his way or I've been taught by this particular person or I was brought to faith by that guy as soon as you said that you've lessened Christ you've lessened the influence of Christ over his own church and you've given credit to people who are just a gift that God gave to the church but they're not the redeemer of the church they're not the salvation of the church they're just the tool that God used to bring you to Christ So Paul argues, you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I thank God that I baptized none of you except, and it's almost like he suddenly had a memory, except Crispus and Gaius. Okay, I baptized them. Let's just pick up there next week. It's getting late and it's getting hot. I think I've made my point, but let me just throw one more thing out, theologically speaking, because this is important. Paul just said, I didn't baptize any of you. 
That shows me that baptism is not essential for salvation. Because if it were, Paul wouldn't be bragging about the fact that he didn't baptize them. If baptism were essential for salvation, I think baptism is a great idea. Everybody who professes Christ should make the public proclamation should be baptized. But if Paul believed that baptism was an absolute essential for salvation, he would have baptized people because he's in the process of teaching people, saving people, bringing people to Christ. He baptized them. And here he is saying, I didn't baptize anybody. I baptized two people, but no others. So we will get into the baptism argument and debate next week. And we will start with Paul talking about that very fact. But I just want to point out that for Paul to preach and teach people and guide them and be a gift minister from God, chosen by Christ, taught by Christ to the church, and then not to baptize means that he didn't hold baptism as an essential. You got it? Have I just worn you all out? Have I talked for so long that you're just worn out? Is that, that's just it. All right. Are there any questions? I have one thing. Yes. It's more of a comment than a question. Sure. The unity thing is essential, but the devil always has a counterpart. And it's been going on for quite a while with the ecumenical movement, Vatican II. There are very big conferences coming up this year. Um, There's one in Washington, 717. Um, They're trying to get a million people in the, under the guise of unity, a lot of big CCM artists are going to be there. A lot of big preachers, Francis Chan, the head of the SBA, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, is going to be there, Ronnie Floyd. And they're basically wanting to tear down all the doctrinal divisions. And, and the Pope will be giving an address. <laughs> the Pope has issued his decree that he wants people to come. So that's the, the, the dangerous side. It's like you talked earlier about, you know, you can have grace all the way over here, which is license, and then you can have legalism. Right. And this unity is a false unity because it's not, like Tyler was saying earlier, it's not unity in the gospel. It's not unity in the Christ of the gospel. It's that another Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's something we all have to be aware of, not just for ourselves, but other Christians that we're going to come in contact with. <clears throat> They're going to be hearing about these things, going to these things, and it's a very strong movement, and there's a spirit behind it, and I, I honestly believe it's the spirit of Antichrist, because it's basically saying, you don't have to worry about any doctrine, you just, we just all believe in Jesus, and you believe in Catholicism, and you're charismatic, and you're this, and it basically eliminates this. Right. In fact, as you were talking, that's what I was thinking. It's the difference between unity in Christ... And unity for unity's sake. So that's, that's a good word. I'm glad that you brought that up. Because Paul, whenever he talks about unity, talks about unity in Christ. It's important to have unity around the word versus just unity for, like I said, unity's sake. And I agree with you. I think it's very deceptive. Because you have to ask yourself, okay, here these people are all in unity around what? Yes, Linda. Why do you suppose that so many major evangelical leaders are attending? 
I think because of what Michael just said. It's unity, and they are gathering under the banner of unity without identifying unity around what? They're gathering for ecumenicalism or ecumenism, which is right. Ecumenism or ecumenicalism? So humanism and ecumenicalism, they're gathering around that and having unity around that, but Paul keeps calling for unity around Christ. And I get, I get scared, honestly, and very concerned when there are leaders who should know. Yeah. That, that is a red flag for me. Is Robbie Zacharias going to Robbie Zacharias. Robbie Zacharias has spoke with the Mormons. He's, he's had audience yeah. with them. He speaks very highly of Catholic contemplatives. So again, I'm not judging where he is, his salvation, but that concerns me that if him, with all his knowledge, I mean, you just have to pick up a catechism. You don't have to study Catholic theology. It's, Catholic theology is very clear right. what they teach, right. as is Mormonism. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a concern. And, and the Bible talks about that, that right. people are going to be led astray. And can you see the big picture that if people are told, well, when you say, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Methodist, you're saying the same thing that Paul just said to the Corinthians. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. You're, you're being uh, divisive in the way that you're making those choices. So don't say, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Methodist or I'm a, say, I'm a Christian and we'll all join under that. And then we'll eliminate all of the distinctives of Christianity and make it just kind of lowest common denominator Christianity, which is the inverse of what Paul is calling us to, which is dedicated Christianity. Very good. Anything else? So we need to cancel our trip. So you need to cancel your trip. Yeah. So don't go to that. Yeah. Don't. Yes. Micah. Men's group is Tuesday. Men's group is Tuesday night. And then also we had, uh, from our anniversary sale, we had some refreshments, cookies that Betrayal made. There's leftovers. They're out there. Cookies and brownies. Help yourself. Take them. Take them home. Cookies and get brownies there. in the foyer. Get there before Jeff. Do you realize that I, I am the person furthest away from those cookies right now? You're in trouble. I'm in trouble. I know. <laughs> Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.